Hey, Matt Teichman here from Elucidations. I just want to say thanks very much for all the iTunes reviews. They've been very helpful, and please keep them coming. As always, you can find us on Twitter at, at @elucidationspod, and you can check out our blog at Lucian. That's L-U-C-I-A-N lucian.uchicago.edu/blogs/elucidations. One other thing I wanted to mention is that since August, we've been doing our hosting through a new startup called Pippa, which is pretty cool. It's actually founded by some former philosophers. And I have to say, I've been very impressed so far. The service is totally free, provides detailed analytics, makes it very easy for you to migrate from your previous host to them. So all in all, it's been a very positive experience, and it's enabled us to get much more detailed stats on who's listening and when. So if you have a podcast and you're looking for a hosting service, you might check them out. They can be found at pippa.io, P-I-P-P-A dot I-O. All right, thanks. Welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast ordinarily recorded at the University of Chicago, but which today is being brought to you from New York. I'm Matt Teichman, and with me is Zed Adams, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the New School for Social Research, and he is here to discuss the genealogy of color. Zed Adams, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. So I think a lot of us, you know, not having written a book on color yet, might think that the concept of color is pretty straightforward. But you've discussed some interesting examples that bring out how there's a history to the way we think of color. How do those examples go? So one way to understand the starting point of my book is in a certain kind of puzzle you could get into in thinking about color. I think this puzzle is usefully illustrated by an example that Edward Averill introduced in the 80s and which is often introduced as a way of bringing out what seems philosophically problematic or puzzling about colors. The example that Avril introduced involves imagining that you have two pots of paint, pot A and pot B. You take these two pots of paint and use them to paint a canvas. You paint the whole canvas with pot A, and then you use the paint from pot B to paint an X in the middle of it. You let the paints dry. You take the painting outside, and lo and behold, to normal color perceivers in the normal conditions of looking at this painting under a sunny sky, it looks all one color. But then you take the same painting inside and look at it under an incandescent light and you're able to see the X painted with the paint from pot B on the backdrop of the paint from pot A. And so the puzzle this seems to raise is, well, how many colors is this painting really? Is it all one in the same color, or is it two distinct colors? And the reason this seems puzzling is because both of those answers seem intuitive. On the one hand, it seems intuitive to think that to normal perceivers in normal conditions, if it all looks the same color, then it is the same color. On the other hand, it seems intuitive to think that, well, if you're inside and looking at it under an incandescent light, and you're seeing a real physical difference between the two pigments from the two pots of paint, then why doesn't that represent a difference in the colors of the pigments themselves? Well, the standard kind of use that this example has been put to in contemporary philosophical debates is 
to try to force us to make a choice about how we really think about color. And this is in the service of trying to offer what I like to call an ahistorical conceptual analysis of our concept of color. So this kind of thought experiment is designed to bring out, okay, what's the way that we really think about color? There's a kind of timeless, unchanging way that we really think about color. This kind of thought experiment is going to bring it out. My goal in using this thought experiment is to use it against itself, to actually challenge the very idea of a historical conceptual analysis, the very idea that there is a timeless, unchanging way in which everyone everywhere thinks about color. I actually think that the fact that you or I, one and the same person, can have these conflicting intuitions about the number of colors on this canvas is a pretty good indication that maybe there's a kind of historically informed complexity to our thought about color, such that maybe the reason we have different intuitions about how many colors there are is because our contemporary thought about color involves inheriting conflicting strands of thought about color, but involves inheriting them in such a way they become intertwined, so they're not clearly distinct in our ordinary thought. But these kind of philosophical problem cases actually do bring out their existence. My strategy then in the rest of the book is to try to offer a plausible history of how it could have come about that we have these multiple conflicting but intertwined strands in our thought. And so that's what the rest of the book involves doing. And just to clarify about the example, this is actually possible, right? We could go down to the hardware store, get two different cans of yellow paint, and do one of these paintings with a one yellow background, another yellow foreground, where in sunlight it would look just like a blank yellow canvas, but then we bring it indoors and suddenly we can see an X. That's totally physically doable. Yes. Yeah. And it's an illustration of a topic called metamers that philosophers of color have been interested in for a long time. And then whereas maybe a lot of people would be tempted to be like, oh, man, now we have to figure out which of these two things we want to say is right. Are they really the same color or are they really different colors? Let's go write a book about that. But what you'd rather do is take a step back and try to tell a story about how we got here and how how there have always been maybe several concepts of color that evolved alongside one another and maybe have um, sort of influenced each other. And that maybe the fact that we have this dual response has to do with the fact that we've inherited multiple concepts of color or something like that. Exactly right. So my goal is to take our philosophical perplexity to be a very real thing, but to try to cope with that philosophical perplexity in a very different way than the standard approach allows for. So one of my big stalking horses in the book is this quotation from P.F. Strassen that I keep coming back to, where he talks about the existence of a set of core concepts that are timeless and unchanging. And I'm using color partly because he thought color was in that set of core concepts and partly because I think the history of color does turn out to be much more complicated than philosophers like Strassen assumed and has much more of a history than philosophers like Strassen assumed. So what are these two different uh, ways of thinking of color that you are interested in, and uh, where do they each originate, and how do they work? So I should say at the outset that I actually think there are more than two strands, but the book is only about these two strands. 
And the Avril case is helpful because it brings out these two strands. So the two strands that I think are at play in the Avril case are what I call the Aristotelian strand and the Cartesian strand. So the Aristotelian strand holds that the colors of things are independent of perceivers and light. And when we see the colors of things, we're finding out about the intrinsic inherent properties of objects that are independent of perceivers and light in that sense. So intrinsic in the sense of just it's a property of the thing itself, not any kind of property of a relation between the perceiver and what they're perceiving. The Cartesian strand, by contrast, holds that colors not independent of light and perceivers, in fact, depends upon light and perceivers in some important way. And so the Avril case, I think, is useful as an illustration of how these two strands can become intertwined, because I think the intuition that we're seeing two different colors under the incandescent light, because there's a real physical difference that we're perceiving under those conditions, I think that's an illustration of the Aristotelian strand. There is a real difference in the object itself that we're perceiving under those conditions. It's like we're discovering it, right? When we, we drag it inside and that now, ah, oh, we didn't know that there was this difference and now we've discovered it, but it was there all along. It was there right? all along and we're discovering that real difference. I think that is a useful illustration of the Aristotelian way of thinking about color. By contrast, when we have this kind of deference to normal perceivers under normal conditions and treat them as a kind of absolute judge of the real colors of things, I think that's a useful illustration of the Cartesian strand because we're thinking there, well, there's nothing more to being a certain color than looking a certain way under certain conditions to certain perceivers. And that brings out the dependence of color on light and perceivers in that sense. Okay, so the ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle influentially put forward this view that the color is a feature of the object itself and the modern French philosopher René Descartes put forth the idea that a color isn't a feature of the object itself, but rather a feature of like the relation between the perceiver and the object itself and something like that. So what you're doing by making these observations is noting that the two directions were pulled in on the yellow X paint case maybe can be traced back to these two ways of thinking about color. What are the lessons we can take from Aristotle and René Descartes about the significance of like this tension we feel, this, the fact that we're pulled in two directions on this example. Here's an illustration of one of the kind of benefits I think we can get from disentangling these, I think, conflicting but intertwined strands. The insight is into why the question of are colors real can seem impossible to answer. So a large part of what I do in the book is actually trace out different aspects of each of these two strands. And one aspect in particular that I focus on in each case is the way in which each of these two strands involves a distinct kind of distinction between reality and appearance. So the Aristotelian strand of thinking about color does draw reality appearance distinction with regard to color. And even though Aristotle thought that we, by and large, are great at detecting the real colors of things, 
he also thought that there are conditions under which when we take ourselves to see the colors of things, we're merely seeing an appearance. It's not really there. And the example that I talk about quite a lot in the book that Aristotle uses to illustrate this is the case of the rainbow. So Aristotle thought that when you look up at a rainbow and see what you take to be redness, you're actually seeing a distorted reflection of the white light of the sun from behind you. So you're seeing a mere appearance that's not really there. It's neither there where you see it in the sky, because it's a reflection of what's behind you, and it's not the color you take it to be because it's not really red. So that led Aristotle and much more prominently the scholastic Aristotelians to draw this reality appearance distinction between the real colors of things that inhere in objects, like the blueness of blue jeans or the redness of an apple, and the merely apparent colors of, say, the red you take yourself to see when you see a rainbow, or the shimmering colors you take yourself to see in the necks of a dove, or in contemporary time, you know, like on the back of a CD. So that's one kind of distinction between reality and appearance, and I locate that within the Aristotelian strand of thought about color. Descartes is responsible for introducing a very different reality-appearance distinction. For Descartes, there's a distinction between properties of objects that are completely independent of our senses, that don't in any way depend upon the constitution of our senses. So when you're looking at a Rubik's Cube, the squareness of the cube is something that's in the object itself and doesn't at all depend upon vision or our eyes and our brain. But Descartes thought when you see the colors of the parts of the Rubik's Cube, what you're seeing there is not independent of your eyes and brain in that same kind of way. So he drew a distinction between what I like to call kind of sense-independent properties of objects and sense-dependent properties of objects. And that, for Descartes, was a kind of reality-appearance distinction. The sense-independent properties were, in a sense, real, and the sense-dependent properties were, in a sense, appearances. And here's the philosophical payoff of noticing these two distinct reality-appearance distinctions. Because if our contemporary thought today involves inheriting both Aristotle and Descartes' thoughts about color, and we don't realize that they're conflicting but intertwined. And then we ask ourselves, are colors in general real? There's no consistent way to answer that question. Okay, So think about the blueness you see in a pair of blue jeans. Is that color real? Well, by Aristotle's reality appearance distinction, that's real because it inheres in the object itself. It's not like the redness in the rainbow that moves or disappears when you move or when the sun goes down or the shimmering colors in the necks of a dove. So it's real in Aristotle's sense, but by Descartes' sense, it's not at all real because it's sense-dependent. It's not sense-independent property. So that, for me, is one of the major payoffs of this kind of genealogical approach to thinking about the origin of philosophical problems because it can bring out why there's really no consistent way to answer the question of whether the blueness of blue jeans is real if what we're doing is inheriting these incompatible strands of thought and thinking about color. Yeah, this is interesting. So I guess, would it be correct to say that 
you were interested in the history of the evolution of different conceptions of color, maybe as a little bit of microcosm or window into the history of the evolution of other different competing conceptions of things. To take one example, the thing you just talked about, the difference between appearance and reality. Yes, very much so. So I, I have to give a kind of long-winded answer to this because I called this a case study in historicized conceptual analysis for a reason. It's a case study because everything that I say in the book depends firmly on specific aspects of the history of color, in particular the kind of rupture in thinking about color that the discovery that light plays this important role in the perception of color plays in the 17th century. So that's something specific about color that's not going to generalize to other cases. And so my approach in writing this book was just to read a whole lot about the history of color science, the history of optics, the history of perceptual psychology, the history of meteorology, surprisingly, and try to extract from those various histories different aspects of these different strands that when they're combined in this complicated way lead to the emergence of these really perplexing philosophical quandaries where we really feel lost with regard to how to think consistently about a topic. So on the one hand, I don't think anything I say in the book about color and the history of color and the origin of philosophical perplexities about color generalizes other cases at all, because it's all specific to the color case. On the other hand, I do think that what I'm trying to do is illustrate the usefulness of a kind of historicized approach to conceptual analysis as a way of coping with perplexing philosophical problems. And I think the hope is that in other cases, we can find similar kinds of insight from looking at the history in those cases. So just to give you some other cases you might think about, I think if you think about the concept of sound, it's currently a very vibrant debate about whether we represent sounds and experiences being events or properties. And there's something to be said on behalf of both of these kinds of views. If you say, what's that sound? And I say, oh, that's the sound of Chauncey kicking in his TV screen. In that sense, there I'm, you know, thinking about the sound as an event. Something happened. Particular, non-repeatable event. But, on the other hand, if you say, what's that sound? And I say, oh, that's, you know, yet another guitar solo featuring a 959 Les Paul. You know, that sound is so played out. Then, I'm thinking about the sound as a property that's repeatable, that and it could be any number of instantiations of. Well, maybe looking into the history of how we've thought about sound might reveal different strands of thought about sound in the same kind of way. I want to be honest, I don't know, and that would be something to find out by reading several dozen books about the history of sound and several hundred articles about it and trying to figure out where that leads. But I actually think, you know, the cases I'd like to work on next would be history of concept of beauty and history of concept of knowledge, because I think, you know, I can think of more straightforward reasons in both those cases to think that there is an obvious 
the historical dimension to the thought that might directly inform some of the persisting philosophical debates in both of those cases about both of those concepts. So I'm trying to move people away from a historical conceptual analysis and towards a kind of historicized conception, but that does mean that in each case you're going to have to look at the particular history and see what morals can be drawn from it. Okay, so based on what you said, it seems like it's pretty difficult to give a consistent answer to the question, is the blue in my genes real or not? Because of the evolution of the concept blue from both of these sources. How is that question investigated in the context of uh, contemporary discussions? So the real starting point for my historical inquiry into these conflicting but intertwined strands of thought about color is a debate that first emerged in the 70s and persists to today between two views, one of which I call Cartesian anti-realism and the other of which I call Oxford realism, about the reality of colors. So Cartesian anti-realists hold that there's a way that we represent colors as being an ordinary experience that nothing in the world satisfies. So they think the concept of color is like the concept of ghosts or witches and that there's nothing in the world that satisfies how we represent colors as being. Oxford realists, by contrast, don't go out and find something in the world that satisfies the Cartesian anti-realist conception of color. They argue that the Cartesian anti-realist has mischaracterized our conception of color. That the way that we really think about color is very different from the way Cartesian anti-realists do, and that the way that we really think about color is satisfied by things in the world. So, importantly, that debate between Cartesian anti-realists and Oxford realists boils down to a debate about how we conceive of colors as being an ordinary experience. And both Cartesian anti-realists and Oxford realists have held that we have to give a single answer to that question. We have to settle what the single way that we really think about colors as being in order to find out whether, you know, that's satisfied by anything in the world. So my historical inquiry then is prompted by the sense that maybe there's not a single way that we think about colors as being. Maybe both Cartesian anti-realists and Oxford realists are in part right about how we think about color, and there's not a single consistent way. But there's a second stage to my engagement with Cartesian anti-realists and Oxford realists beyond the historicized conceptual analysis that I offer as a critique of their singular focus on either one or the other side of how we think. The second stage of my engagement is to argue that the way in which they each discuss the relation between color experience and the world is overly simplistic in a way that makes it impossible for either of them to earn the conclusions they want to draw from their reflections on color experience in the world. And it's at that point that I introduce, drawing upon Robert Cummins' work, the target content distinction. Okay, and uh, what's this target content distinction? In order to understand the target content distinction, it'll help to have a rather simple example. Imagine I take a piece of paper and a pencil and I draw a picture. I hand it to you and I say, 
This picture represents Elvis. Robert Cummings, and I agree with him on this, thinks that that phrase, the picture represents Elvis, is systematically ambiguous between referring to the target and the content of the picture. The target is what the picture aims to represent. The content is how it represents that thing as being. The reason why we need to speak about both of these two dimensions of the representation as distinct is in order to make sense of the possibility of misrepresentation. So imagine that the picture I've drawn is actually of a quite skinny person, skinnier than Elvis ever actually was. In order for that picture to misrepresent Elvis as being skinnier than he ever actually was, the picture has to succeed at having the target of Elvis, while also succeeding at having the content of representing Elvis as being a certain way, namely skinnier than he ever was. It's only with those two conditions both satisfied that we can reasonably speak of it misrepresenting Elvis. My basic criticism of Cartesian anti-realism and Oxford realism is that they both conflate that distinction. Cartesian anti-realists simply let the target aspect drop out altogether and just talk about the content of the experience and then argue that there's nothing in the world that satisfies the contents of our color experiences, even though they themselves hold that color experiences are reliably caused by external causes that we can identify that allow us to reliably track those external causes and re-identify objects in virtue of them. Oxford realists, by contrast, simply let the target take over and hold that color experiences represent whatever it is that's externally causing them. So Cartesian anti-realists try to guarantee that color experiences are systematically mistaken, whereas Oxford realists try to guarantee that color experiences are systematically correct. And my basic criticism is that as long as they only talk about one aspect of representation, they're not going to be able to actually talk about representational success or failure. Would you say the same thing applies to the concept of light? So have we inherited conflicting conceptions of what light is from previous generations? Yes, I think there are conflicting conceptions of light, and they play an important role in the history I tell. On the one hand, there's an Aristotelian conception of light as something that makes it possible for us to see the colors of things. So Aristotle talks about light as a state of the transparent medium, which is just his fancy way of saying that it's a state of what we see things through. So if it's light or illuminated out, we're able to see the colors of things. But Aristotle is very explicit that light is not itself capable of doing anything. Nothing is brought about by light. Whereas Descartes, by contrast, thinks of light as a specific kind of motion. So light is capable of doing things. And that means that what actually directly causes our color experience for Descartes is light. Whereas for Aristotle, light's just an enabling condition of being of it being possible for colors to cause our color experiences. So they're very different conceptions of light and I think the discovery that light plays the kind of role that Descartes thought it 
does and allowing us to see the colors of things did represent a real rupture in our thinking about vision. And it's that rupture that led to a lot of the problems that I think we're still saddled with today about color perception. So that's one half I want to say in response to your question. The other half of what I want to say is, but I think it's interesting that with regard to light, we don't find the same kind of persistent debates about light realism and anti-realism that we do in the color case. And part of what I'm trying to do is explain why that's the case. Why I think that's the case is because when it comes to color, there's an assumption that how we think about color is a historical unchanging and importantly, unrevisable and independent of novel scientific discoveries. Whereas when it comes to light, we think of light as not that same kind of ordinary concept. I'm trying to show how our ordinary concept of color is actually much closer to our concept of light than a lot of philosophers have thought. That's a really interesting contrast. I never thought about that before, but it seems right. Like, I think we're all pretty cool with the feeling that what light, what we think light is, has changed over time. Like now we think of it as a kind of electromagnetic radiation, but you know, in Aristotle's day, he thought of it as an enabling condition for being able to see or something like that. There's a two very different things, right? An enabling condition to see and an electromagnetic radiation are very different, but we're like okay with that in a way that we're not with color. Exactly. And so um, I think underlying the persistence and attractability of philosophical debates about color realism is the false assumption that color is different in kind from our concept of light and that it's unrevisable. So you'll often find people say that, well, we can't think of color in more physical terms, because that would be changing the subject. I'm trying to pull the rug out from underneath that kind of response to how we might revise our thought about color. So do you think this is a general phenomenon where, like, we could say this about a lot of our concepts, that they just, you know, evolve over time and they're revisable? Um, are there any concepts that are insulated from uh, revision according to whatever scientific progress or changes in cultural mores or whatever? I think the final dogma of empiricism is the assumption that there are in principle unrevisable concepts that are part of an ahistorical unchanging core body of how we think about the world so now I reject the idea that there are any such unrevisable concepts I don't have an argument for thinking that all concepts are revisable what I've rather done is take in a paradigmatic instance of a concept that many philosophers have taken to be unrevisable and shown how the actual history of it is, in fact, pervaded with the influence of scientific and philosophical theorizing. And that, moreover, it's the existence, the influence of that scientific and philosophical theorizing that has left us in a philosophical quandary about how to think about this concept. And so... The hunch is, if we look at other philosophical concepts that have been at the center of persistent and intractable debates in a historical conceptual analysis, such as the concept of knowledge, 
maybe it will turn out that the history of that concept similarly reveals the influence of previously hidden scientific and philosophical developments that have actually revised and reshaped how we think about that thing. Zed Adams, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at at elucidationspod. And as always, you can post a comment to our blog at lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening.